Hello and welcome to the Ocean Impact Podcast. Our guest today is Julia Wheeler, who among being an incredible freediver, is a passionate conservationist, a photographer, filmmaker, and all-round inspiring female. I took the opportunity to tease out of Julia in this podcast just what it's like to go through a competitive freediving experience. So stay tuned midway through for her account of what that is like. And we also took a lot about her current work, which is creating an incredible documentary on endangered species preservation, particularly on Africa. So tune in. I'm sure you'll find what Julia has to say incredibly captivating and interesting. And as always, if you like the episode, share it around and write a review. Thanks for tuning in. Okay, really pleased to have on the podcast today uh, an old friend and, and great ally in ocean conservation, Julia Wheeler. How are you, Julia? I'm good. How are you, Tim? <laughs> Very good, thank you. Thanks for tuning in. So you're um, you're in Clavelli today in Sydney. How are you coping with the current circumstances around the lockdown? Oh, I absolutely hate it. I hate it so much. I can't swim which is really frustrating, but I know that a lot of people have it 10 times worse than I do. Um, but yeah, I mean, and I'm also not a parent who has a two or three or 10 year old running around screaming. So I'm considering myself pretty lucky, but it is really frustrating. What about yeah, you? Because, yeah, look, I'm coping okay. We were just having a chat before we started the recording that, um, you know, I used to live in the eastern suburbs of Sydney where you are now. And I'm definitely thankful that I don't live there with all the closed beaches. And what I'm imagining is a bit of not only frustration, anxiety, but also maybe even a little bit of angst that you can't access the ocean. Is that what you're picking up around there? Yeah, I look, I'm definitely angry about it. <laughs> so, um, I mean, I there's still people surfing in the water and I don't know how to surf and I, I'm actually a little bit scared of surfing, but I've been seriously tempted just to grab a board and wrap a rope around my leg and pretend I know how to surf just so I can go in the ocean. But yeah. And, and on the other hand, you know, I kind of feel, you know, I definitely feel jealous, but I'm also like, yeah, go guys, <laughs> get, get the water while you can. Um, but yeah, it's definitely not cool. Have you been in the ocean recently? When was it the last time you were in the salt water? Um, I was, I don't know. It's been, I actually can't remember. Um, uh, yeah, I don't know. I okay. probably Gordon's Bay actually before everything closed, um, about yeah. three weeks, three weeks ago, um, I went for a dive, just a little snorkel and you had to climb in off the rocks, um, because I think they closed the beaches and people were still going in off the rocks. So yeah, I went for a cheeky snorkel then, but that's it really. Hey, well, we've got to make sure we, we keep our physical and human health in check during these crazy times. So saltwater certainly does that for me, and I'm sure it does for you. Yeah, usually, definitely. <laughs> That's been so really we were, hard. Yeah. We were talking um, just before about, uh, you know, the titles that we, we give people, and um, and for you, we were throwing around photographer, filmmaker, freediver, conservationist. Um is it easy to put a little label on yourself at this point in time? How would you describe yourself to people listening in? Um, I would describe myself 
as just someone who grabs the bull by the horns, really. <laughs> I really give everything a go that I find really interesting or really intriguing or something that I want to learn more about. So, yeah, freediving. I've tried freediving. I've competed in freediving. Um and, you know, in a world's level, which has been really amazing. Um, I've made five documentaries in the last two years and they're going to be released soon, hopefully, around endangered species conservation. And that's a project I was working on for six years prior just to, you know, get the concept right and work out how I was going to make these documentaries and where I was going to get the funding from and, you know, how do you make a documentary? So that was just a really big learning process. And then, um, yeah, I mean, I've been holding a camera since I was really small, uh, probably about five or six years old. I first kind of, you know, started stealing my dad's camera and changing all of the settings um, and making these really overexposed, blown out pictures, which I thought were awesome. I still think I, you know, <laughs> I still tell myself that they're kind of cool, but they're really not. Um, but yeah, so I don't know. I grew up in West Australia, ocean born, um, love the surf, love the water, love talking to people and I loved animals. So kind of you take all those bits and pieces and that's who I am now, I guess. Yeah. And uh, who you are now is is pretty awesome. And, um, you know, I've really enjoyed our our friendship over the years and where we've been able to align on mutual uh, missions. You were uh, you know, great ambassador for Take Three for the Sea, and uh, I'm just really, yeah, really stoked to see how your journey has unfolded, um, particularly with this latest project, um, Wild Shots, which we'll get to and talk about later on. But yeah, I think um, there's a lot to talk about today, Jules, and I guess we will go back to those early days. I was skimming through your very awesome Instagram feed earlier, and the image popped up of you about three years old with your goggles on, yeah. waiting for your dad to take you out on an adventure. Can you recount what it was like growing up and how you got into this adventurous lifestyle so early? Oh, that's so funny. Um, it's so funny, actually, that you bring up that picture because the street that I was standing on, this the first, the first street I ever grew up on, was actually called Bath Street. Um, so, And then I started kind of holding my breath in the bath or the, the so, yeah, I don't know, Bath Street and holding my breath in the bath. It was just a weird thing. And, yeah, I would always walk around with my goggles upside down and I would wear them all the time. It didn't matter where I was. I I loved them. I loved the feeling of I'm going to the beach or I'm going to the pool or we're going on an adventure. So, yeah, I guess growing up in West Australia, you know, I had a canvas of the red deserts, the green treetops and the blue ocean, and it was just vast and expanded for as far as my little eyes could see. <laughs> so it was just, I wanted to be amongst it. And I think my dad um, always took us down south. So we'd go to Esperance, Margaret River, Yarling Up, um, and then we'd go up north to Kalbarri and Monkey Mire. And, you know, we'd always be traveling, always moving, always in a four-wheel drive. Um, there was always so much to see. So I guess having that lifestyle growing up and being lucky to travel um, I just kind of my curiosity just kind of naturally evolved I guess and I was never really held back I was always kind of told like just go you know if you want to if you want to see something or talk to someone just go and talk to them like it's fine so you know I did that and I even I think at one point I 
I think I took it quite literally. Um, my parents took me to Rottnest Island, um, which is just 22 kilometres off the coast of Perth, and I was nine, eight or nine years old. And actually, no, I was even younger. I think I was five. And dad, and I was on my bike. Um, I had a um, like a little mountain bike thing, and my sister was in the pram. She was a baby. And mum and dad were walking along, and it was becoming dark, but I just had this sense of I've got to go like but like, I've just got to go and I just rode off and then I just ditched my parents and I had to find the police and get the police to take me home but I was really hungry so I actually got um KFC on the way home as well and then I had to tell the police officer where I lived and then my parents weren't even worried when I you know it was like nine o'clock at night when I came home and I was like five or six years old and they just didn't seem to you know, but where do you go on Rottnest Island apart from around and around the island? So that's true. But the most dangerous thing there is uh, is the quokkas or potentially the big fish that are off the off the coastline. Yeah, we are talking about some pretty wild ocean in the southwest of Australia. Um, so obviously, you you became competent in the bathtub and the pool. You're a bit of a championship uh, champion swimmer for a while there. But what was it like? going into the ocean, what were some of your early memories of, of taking your love for water and going into some sort of wild and uh, dynamic ocean? I think what, I mean, yeah, and you're right. I mean, West Australia, the, the Indian Ocean, it's, it's, so, it's so wild. Um, it's so powerful and it, it really kind of wakes the soul a little bit. There's a bit of a calling. Um, and I think, again, I, you know, my dad used to get me out of bed really early every morning and I'd go to the sea. And I think my earliest memories were the waves were so huge, like massive, huge. Like, But they were the big dumpy ones, you know, the ones that just like dump straight on the shore. They roll and they just smash. There's no like beautiful Hawaiian like long sets or anything like that. And I remember you know I really wanted to go out I had to get past those waves to get out to be able to be in deep water so I had to teach myself to lie flat on on the ocean floor and hold the sand as the waves rolled over me and I think event like over time I just naturally opened my eyes and would just look up while the waves you know rolled over me and I could feel sometimes the back of my ankles flip up from the wave and it would kind of freak me out a bit, but it was fun. So I just remember, you know, looking up and seeing the light coming in through the waves and tasting the salt water and, you know, feeling that really nice salty steam in, in the eyeballs. Um, and then swimming up to the surface and just breathing. But I never really, I don't know, I guess holding my breath again so I could accomplish the goal to get out into the big ocean was what kind of got me through to the next step so I wouldn't it wasn't ever really like a challenge it was more a reward like if I held my breath laid on the ocean floor looked up I knew that I would then be free so I would overcome this big you know fear of being dumped and you got seriously smashed by those waves so yeah I guess that's kind of the earliest memories or how I felt about the sea it was always a reward I guess yeah was your uh was your father 
similarly swimming with you at those times or was he surfing what was he what was his purpose in going to the beach no um dad would just be in the water as well I guess he would just go for a swim he'd chill on the sand go for a run um I was usually always by myself I knew that he would he would have you know he my dad has has eyes on the back of his head like he would know where I was but it never I never really thought oh dad's watching me I'll be safe it was just you know, oh, sometimes I guess he wasn't, I don't know, it wasn't, I just, yeah, no, I did things very individually and it was fun. Um, and, yeah, if Dad was out in the ocean at the same time as me, then that was cool. But most of the time I was just so focused on being in the water and swimming and keeping my legs kicking and, yeah, it was just an obsession. Um, yeah, massive obsession, so... <laughs> so the swimming obviously was a big part of it and then you you just enjoyed spending increasingly more time underwater even when you were swimming right so yeah. what then happened between um that obsession with swimming and that relationship that you had as a you know teenager to then actually get into the the world of free diving which is you know is a, it's a pretty significant evolution onwards from that I think while I was at school as well, um, having a mixture of competing in swimming and representing the school, and then also I ended up swimming to a rot nest as well. So I was training pool training um, with Lynn McKenzie, who was an ex-Olympian, and she pushed me really, really hard, especially on my technique as a swimmer. And I'm super grateful for being able to train with her at Challenge Stadium in West Australia. So I think I evolved, like, my pool training then went into ocean swimming. And then I, after I finished my degree and went to NIDA, I think I studied in Sydney for, like, four years or something, I got into my second degree um, submission at Bond University in the Gold Coast for criminal law for psychology. And two days before I was meant to go... I just bailed and I just sold everything in my apartment and I just got a one-way ticket to Thailand and I just wanted to just chill out and just just be be young, I guess. I wanted to be in my early 20s and not, you know, feel like I had to conquer the world or do all this, you know, do more studying or you know, I kind of felt pressure a little bit that I had to do this and do that and be like everyone else and get a degree and, you know, because I didn't ever really do anything my family wanted me to do. I just did what I wanted to do, which I think it's it's the way it should be, as in I followed my senses to where I wanted to be in life. And that was really challenging in itself. Um, but I gave up that other degree, moved to Thailand and I knew I just wanted to go back into the water. I just knew. I just, I really, really knew. I just, in all of me, just said, you ha- you know, let's just go back. Go go to the islands. Go have fun. Relax. And some of my friends just said to me, just chill out. Like, go and have fun. So I went to Thailand and then I did a scuba diving course. I just booked the whole way through um, to Dive Master. So it was six, seven weeks of training. And it was fun. Like, scuba diving's fun. But after I'd finished scuba diving, I walked past a shop in an island that I was living in called Koh Tao, and it was like a freediving shop, 
and I'd seen the big fins and I thought I'll give it a go and I did and I guess I just yeah that was when I was like 22 or 23 um and yeah I just loved it so much um and then I came back to Australia and I got a job and then I hated that (laughs) and then I quit that job and I bought a camera I sold my car and bought my first Canon like big camera and then I walked across Spain the country and then then I ended up um, doing some photography like working for myself for ages and then I like a couple of years later I ended up competing by accident in the Australian world, freediving, or the Australian freediving championships after a breakup. And I literally just had, I decided to go to Bali um, because it was a place that made me feel really happy and I have a really nice, strong connection of friends there who are also freedivers. And I thought, I'm going to go back to Bali because I'm miserable, like super freaking miserable, um, heartbroken, sad. I'm going to go freediving I'd been going I'd been going back to Bali for three years in a row and yeah I went to photograph this competition and they ended up needing other competitors because they were short so they said two days before the competition Julia can you just enter and I I did and then I, I came third completely you know didn't go in to win it or come third I just did it because I knew it would make me happy but it was also the most nerve-wracking thing I've ever done in my life um but yeah I just you know I think giving things a go is really important um and that's what I did and that's what happened and then that then escalated um to world championships and I yeah I'm now I'm a 50 meter diver um I got I did pretty well in world championships um as in I just you know, stayed focused and loved my dives um, and loved what I was doing. So that's how freediving happened. <laughs> so, I, yeah. was, um, I was just doing some reading before and so it sounds like obviously you'd, you'd done your some professional training obviously in your freediving and were pretty yeah. competent, but this idea that you were there to photograph the the depth championships and then it was like, oh, Julia, you're, you're really good at this. Why don't you go in? There, there was more to it than that. Like you were well-trained and well-prepared to compete, but let alone you got involved and went to 30 metres and came third. I wouldn't say I was, I wouldn't say I was well-trained. I only started training literally, honestly, it was probably two to three days before the competition. I started training as in getting on a line, doing my breathe-ups, diving down, experiencing the body change, like, you know, really, really immersing myself in what, you know, I guess it it was it was an opening of a doorway, that competition, into what freediving actually is and what it can do for you as a person. Um and how it's probably the most incredible feeling you can have as a mammal. Um you know, in, in the ocean. So yeah, it was really, really, really incredible experience. Um, but I definitely hadn't trained much. Um, but yeah, I didn't, I don't know. It was, 
And that again, I think that you know everybody should give free diving a go. It's really cool. <laughs> yeah, with the right instructions, not just going out there and diving to thirty meters. No. Can I? I think this was something when I was planning our conversation today, and we're getting close to it now. Is just this like take us, take me, take everyone listening through this experience of what it's like to free dive to depth. Um. Take you through. Take, just take us there, like you know what it, you know. Just, you you touched on a little bit just then, but Sorry. you know it's like um. I just want to sort of. I want to almost just to sort of feel it a little bit through this digital connection of what the process that you're going through, what it's like to descend, what your body goes through. Like just yeah, give us a little glimpse because some of us will never get the chance to. Okay, so when you're free diving, you when. Oh, in competition mode. I'll just take you through a competition um, because it is a place that you have to choose to go to, um, which means, you know, you have to be completely in control of everything that's going on around you, every glitch of your body, every twitch, every feeling, you know, from the water on your skin, your face, being able to identify with certain elements that make you feel certain ways that help you perform or be the best that you can be in the water as a freediver. Um, and this is just my personal experience. Everybody is so different. This is just me coming from me, <laughs> like no other freediver. Um, but essentially, you know, in a competition, you have three minutes to warm up or to breathe up. So a big part of freediving and competing is visualisation. And I actually wrote a little post about this on Instagram the other day. And it's that if you visualise what is in front of you or what's to come and what's to happen or where you want to be, it makes it a lot easier when you're actually going through that process. Um and with freediving and competing, it's, it's, I find it helps me more than anything to visualise my dives. So I'm in the water, well, you'll be in the water, and you are breathing up, so you're holding onto your line, you've got your lanyard on, you're attached to the line, you have four safety divers around you, you have your coach, no one can touch you, no one's talking, you have a depth gauge on your wrist, your heart rate is being monitored, you're being watched by a camera underwater on the surface and there's a whole bunch of athletes around you just watching you, waiting to see, you know, what happens. And you can't think of any of that. <laughs> you have to block everything out. It's like being in a really bad situation and, you know, maybe you don't know what's going on in your head. Sometimes no, you do know what's going on in your head, I mean, but sometimes you'll be in a position in life where you're having, you're receiving some bad um, energy or some bad vibes or someone has said something nasty to you. When you're free diving or when you're about to dive, you have to just completely clear your mind. You have to clear everything. You have to clear all negativity. You have to just, you know, trust that, everything is in control in your control and that you are able to do what you are about to set out to do so that involves just being very very in the moment 
and just concentrating and relaxing and just feeling the water on your skin and, you know, taking really big, deep breaths and just really just becoming very centered and very at one with all of your feelings and what's going on in your mind and your body. So that's what happens in the beginning for me. And then I take my last breath and again, while I'm breathing, I know that I'm about to go down to 50 meters and I have to keep telling myself, this is exactly where I need to be. So that's kind of my mantra that I run through. (laughs) And so I take my last breath, I take my dive. And then past, so 15 metres, when I hit 15 metres, I start to free fall. And that's when your body, you're basically, I mean, it's different for all bodies, like different people. Some people start free falling at 13 metres, some people 15, some people 16, 17, it doesn't matter. But I'm around the 15, 16 metre mark. And that's when you just have to let everything go and completely trust yourself. And this is when your body is having all of these different adaptations and, you know, to the pressure. I mean, when you hit 10 metres, for example, when you go 10 metres underwater, you are in double the amount of pressure than what you are exposed to on the surface. So everything is constricting. Um, and you have to, and you know, you can tell that that's going on around you. You can feel these little g- glitches and twitches and, you know, you don't, you just, you, you could think, oh my gosh, my my heart, my lungs are going to be squashed to the size of, you know, baseballs. But you don't think like that. You just have to just be okay with it and trust that, it, that you're okay. And in doing that, you have to trust yourself. So anyway, you start free falling and that's kind of when you can lose it um, in your free fall. Well, that's when I find I can lose it. When you disengage with being completely in control and in focus of free falling so yeah you just you let go you let everything go and you just enjoy like plummeting down like a complete dead weight into the complete you know into absolute blackness and not you don't know what's down there I mean obviously you you hope that there's nothing really down there but sometimes yeah like I don't know you just you're letting go of everything, you're letting go and completely trusting yourself. So, yeah, that free fall can be incredibly euphoric and enjoyable or it can be a little bit stressful. Um, but the more control that you have over yourself and your body in trusting that you're going to be okay and that's where you're supposed to be and staying completely present means that you're going to get to where you need to go. So then you hit the bottom plate and you grab your tag and you stick your tag in your hood or in your um, sleeve and you begin to ascend. Um, and I think the ascent is a little scary. Um, out of the whole dive for me, when I hit the 50 metre mark and I'm coming back up, I usually will do one, especially if it's um, no fins or with my um, with uh, constant weight, which is a monofin. When I do my first kick, at 50 metres, I usually sink again because I'm a complete dead weight and I'm wearing weight. So I'll kick and I'll sink a little and then I'll kick and I'll sink a little and you just can't panic. <laughs> so you just have to keep kicking and you you'll, you you get a momentum, like you get your, gro- your groove happening and 
um, eventually like you hit the buoyant space again and then you start to feel your body like you start flying back up and then yeah it's very cool it's very empowering um, and very rewarding knowing that you can push yourself to a limit um, that you set out to push yourself to and you know it doesn't have necessarily have to be in free diving it can be in making documentaries it can be in photography it can be in a, a job interview and applying for a job that you don't think you'll ever get and then you eventually get it because you saw that you could do it um, or you believed in yourself so free diving I guess is just a, a way for me to also apply those tools both mentally and physically into my everyday life, um, which has been really, really helpful, especially like in the last two years of my life with working in other areas. Um, so, yeah, I don't know if that answers your question. I just felt like I was rambling. <laughs> oh, my gosh, that was um, that was really epic. Um, thank you for, for taking us there. I think uh, anyone out there who has you know attempted anything uh involving diving to depth in the ocean or has imagined themselves doing that would have been in um yeah absolute their attention was complete during that that little exchange thank you so much julia that's okay that's where i was actually going to sort of take the questioning first aside from sort of commenting about how cool rewarding terrifying but also must be strangely addictive that whole experience is but i wanted to go on to that Next point about, well, yeah, how do you, having gone through such a testing experience as a mammal, and how are you applying those same sort of learnings or same controls into other aspects of life, which is what you were just sort of saying there and alluding to this last couple of years and the work that you've been doing in Africa, I'm assuming? I think it just really taught me to be present, like really, really, really present and very grounded. So... Yeah, wherever I am or whoever I'm with or whoever I'm speaking to, it's just taught me to be very, very there, Um, very engaged. But that can also be, I guess, a bit of an annoyance for people because I can be very intense (laughs) because I'm so fixated and focused on the task in front of me Um, and that, I guess, became even more so in my personality from freediving. But before freediving, I guess I was a lot like that too. But I don't know. I guess I just feel a lot more centred and a lot more wholesome. Um, I don't like using the word wholesome because it doesn't really explain. Um, Maybe, yeah, I think grounded, like my feet definitely feel more on the ground, like more firm. So you know, if I'm in a helicopter with an anti-poaching pilot over Kruger National Park or a national, not, not sorry, not over Kruger National Park, over like the surrounding reserves of Kruger and we're on an anti-poaching flight, I'm right there, you know, I'm present, I'm not thinking about the other 50 things I need to do or, you know, I'm filming and I'm in the moment and I'm holding my gear and I'm, you know, it's just, there's so many things that it, has done for me but the main one is is that it's taught me to be very 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 there very very engaged and very present um and also that you can you know you have a choice and having a choice as a human being is a very powerful thing I think um having the ability to choose if you want to do something or you don't want to do something is such 
such a gift that we have. And I think if we could rather look at that gift of choice as a positive rather than a negative um, and apply it to, you know, even single-use plastics or the direction we want to take our life in, then I think we could all be a lot more grounded and happier as people. But, I mean, that's a big call, but, yeah, you know, no one no one makes me go free diving. No one makes me do the things that I do. Um, and when shit gets tough and you say, I chose to do this, it's okay, I'm going to get through it, you know, you will get through it and you will be fine and you will recover. Um, and, yeah, you'll keep going and you'll do do it again or you'll do something new again and you'll know that you can get there and you'll know that it'll be fine. But, yeah, I don't know if I'm explaining that very well. <laughs> there you are. Let's go – let's jump from the ocean to you know, species conservation in Africa. Like, Where did your passion for helping the plight of endangered species, particularly in Africa, come from and, and what have you been doing to scratch that itch? Um, so when I was a kid as well, um, I loved animals a lot and I told my parents when I was six that I was going to go to Africa um, and I wanted to save, you know, I, I loved watching nature documentaries and I wanted to save all the animals and that was my kind of aspiration when I was a child. Um, and then I guess when I was 27, I met a producer who had a similar aspiration to me and we set out to make a series um, called Wild Shots. And the series is about my journey behind the scenes of endangered species conservation. So I'm just a normal person in the world like everyone else in society and I'm going into the lives of people who are actively saving the planet and doing amazing things and I wanted to tell their stories and share their lives but experience firsthand how difficult it is and how real the situations are um, that I was faced with or confronted with and just to show people here um, you know in the western world that on first world that we are so lucky to have what we have and we should be cherishing what we have and protecting what we have because there are places in the world like Africa that have stories that will just blow your mind and they're the stories that I want to share and tell. And hopefully they'll inspire encourage, and encourage people to be more grateful and do better things for the environment. Um, so, yeah, that was kind of where it all came from and that's the intention of it. And I hope to show you soon what it is. Yeah, because you have been spending a lot of time, I guess, in the original production and now all the post-production. Um, and, yeah, we wish you the absolute best with that with that project. So touching on that, you know, the, the plight of endangered species on land versus what you've seen or know of in the ocean, how are you feeling about the state of the world and 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 human humankind's response to what is increasingly obvious signs of um of the one-way path we're going down. How are you feeling about conservation broadly? 
Um, look, in all honesty, it's really, 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 like, ouch. It's, it's very real. And I don't, you know, I, I don't think people realise how real it is. Um, yeah, I mean, after I finished filming last year in May, before post-production, I think I literally was, I was so unhappy for three or four months. Like the majority of how I felt after I finished Wild Shots season one was just like, holy shit, <laughs> you know, like what are we doing to the planet? Like is there any, you know, is there hope? And I think after a lot of thought and processing what I'd seen and where I'd been and who I'd worked with, I realised that there is hope and there is a way that we can all still protect the planet. And that's essentially for me what it's about. It's about protecting what is there, not necessarily protecting what is left. Um, I don't think that's a good way to look at it because that in itself is quite a depressing term, like saying, you know, we have to protect what's left. Why aren't we just protecting what's there now? Because, you know, giving what's there now time to grow and, and evolve again and develop. Because if we, if we did, if we just protected what's there now, we would, we would, I think we would be okay. Um, but yeah, I've seen devastating things. Like everyone thinks Madagascar is this, you know, island, you know, paradise island off the east coast of Africa. And it is so, like, I've the deforestation that I've seen, that I saw, the, the poverty, I mean, it's, 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 it's just, it's insane, like, it's crazy. And there's people who are spending 17, 18 hours a day just trying to stop forests from being cut down. Like, ugh, I don't know. There's so much to say. I just it's hard. It's so hard. It, I, I don't know. I, I guess it comes in waves. Some days I think everything will be okay if, if pe more people knew what was going on. And then some days I just think, I don't, you know, I don't know if there's any hope. And that's really weird for me to even say that um, because of what I've seen. Um, but I know that there's so many people fighting for, you know, fighting to protect what we have. And those those are the people that give me hope and those are the stories that I want to share and hopefully through those people and through their message it will give our world a better understanding of what's going on and how they can help to preserve what we have, I guess. But yeah. Yeah, and realising, I guess, what it is that you know, we can do and, and how much of that plight we take onto our shoulders as well. And yeah. I think for people like yourself, it is just so powerful to be in the driving seat of this range of communications tools that you utilise to tell those stories, to ignite hope, to educate, to inspire. So maybe we have a little bit of a conversation about that. I mean, you know, you... You do use communication tools through your photography and filmmaking and you yeah. know, relationship with social media to, to, spread, to spread so much inspiration. Um, yeah, maybe tell us a little bit about that, what, what, what fires you up and fuels you to keep doing that. I think that rather than telling people 
what the problem is um, and how to, you know, fix it. I think it's so much cooler and more engaging to show people like you, you, you would take three, you guys show everyone, this is the problem, but this is also the solution. And that's what I love doing, you know. So I find that it keeps me more positive if someone shows me um, a solution to a problem as even if it's their way of taking the steps to fix a problem rather than telling me something. So yeah, I mean, I like doing that with my social media, just saying, hey, this is what we did, and then three people learn. They did something to fix something, and this is what it was, and now I'm inspired to do that too. Um, so, yeah, I think that's a cool way to, you know, share the world's issues without making it too depressing but also shine light and highlight and inspire people into taking action in the, their everyday lives. Um, plastic's been a huge one. You know, you've been a huge, like, your your message for years, like nine years, ten years would take three, massive message about single-use plastics. And it's embedded in everyone now. Like, well, maybe not everyone, but in a lot of people. And I think that that's been so successful because you guys are so positive about the problem as well, but positive in the fact that we can still make a difference so yeah that's kind of the way I like to as educate inspire but obviously like I get seriously annoyed as well like people don't you know something as easy as like a reusable water bottle I just think some people are very lazy and they don't take the initiative to just go and buy a reusable water bottle and fill it up with water like why can't everyone do that why does why are people still buying or using plastic bags you know, so I guess, yeah, I try not to get annoyed, but obviously things annoy me, like I'm sure they annoy you too. So, yeah. Anyway. Oh, well, especially when you've, you know, you you understand it, right? You've you've gone and undertaken that journey of discovery almost on behalf of everyone else. And, and what you're asking people to do is actually really simple. Like, I'm just asking you yeah. to do this because you don't realise, but if everyone does it, there's a huge impact. So please, please just do this one thing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it, it's such a small thing, right? It's not, it's not a huge thing. But I think then, Tim, like, you know, global warming, massive thing, okay? It is a massive thing. The impact it's having is massive right? But we can still do things to reduce that impact. Um, I think I like to encourage people to buy trees, plant trees, <laughs> just everybody plant trees. <laughs> um, so, you know, just there's so, such an overwhelming amount of really depressing information about global warming. And especially, you know, with all of the people that have been affected by the bushfires, it's so bad. And I can't help but think, are we going to have that again this summer? Is it going to happen? Um, you know, what are we going to do? But instead of saying that kind of thing, I just say, like, you know, what can we do to prevent that or help, you know, continue to produce oxygen? And if people can donate to tree, tree growing, tree developing, tree planting, trees, lots of trees, like in Gabon in West Africa, they have 10,000 species of trees. That's one of the countries I made a documentary about and their conservation efforts. Unbelievable, like un unreal, like freaking amazing, you know, 
this place, it's just next to left of the Congo Basin and below Cameroon. It's just incredible, absolutely incredible. And it's one of the last Edens, so to speak, on Earth, much like Costa Rica, um, where they have retained a lot of their rainforest and they've protected it and they've formed 13 national parks to protect it and they revoked a lot of logging permits in order to protect it. And it's just incredible and it's doing incredible things to the environment and you guys will see when that comes out. (laughs) But I feel like if we could all look at countries that are doing incredible things and take pieces of that, even if our government is completely oblivious to what's going on or chooses to be oblivious or chooses to not give a shit or chooses to not do enough or, you know, chooses to join, you know, the coal wagon, just all that stuff, but I won't talk about politics because that makes me mad. (laughs) But if we can just as individuals kind of, you know, do our own thing as best as we can, um, we can still make a big impact. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, yeah, being being part of the solution, as kind of cliche as it sounds, you know, your actions, not only do they make a tangible difference, but you also have, you know, a sphere of influence around you, which I, I reflect upon a lot, I suppose, because, you know, like many others, I still consider myself just a normal person, but through whatever reasons and through whatever tools, you can create influence. And that influence can either be negative or it can be positive. And so, Keep making sure that you um, you stand for what you believe in and you do something and you also let that seed out to others, which is once again back to this communication point, something I think you do really well. And I just imagine the amount of people that you inspire every day with the way you communicate about the state of the planet and particularly about the ocean. I mean, a dive into your Instagram feed is a dive into the ocean. It's spectacular. Um Thanks. You obviously love photography on both sides of the lens, right? Um, yeah. What is it about getting down there and capturing you in the ocean that you find so enjoyable and uh, and inspiring and valuable? Um, I think I just like being underwater. <laughs> so I just like exploring. And if someone's taking pictures, of me, it's really fun um, because I'm a photographer, as you know, both sides of the camera. And, you know, I was just in the Bahamas at the end of February um, with a friend and he was a professional or is a professional photographer. And he'd never had anyone who was also a professional photographer with him to photograph him. And I got to shoot him and I got to shoot a professional freediver and it was awesome and he was shooting me and then we were exploring together and we both had the same ability in the freediving world. So we were able to stay down, push our limits a little bit more. We had an amazing kind of synergy in the water. We had a great, you know, buddy situation. We would go in caves, shipwrecks, places that, you know, you're looking for things. You're looking for light and you're looking for angles and you're looking for you know, it's just, it's just so much fun and you know and they know what to look for. So you're not doing it by yourself. You're, you're in front of the camera because, you know, you can be, which is awesome. Anybody looks good underwater, let's be honest. It's not hard to take a bad photograph underwater, like especially if you have shipwrecks and beautiful light and you'll have some water clarity you know, it's an incredible place. It's so vibrant and it's ever moving and it's ever talking to you and it's ever flowing and it's just a really cool energy under there. So 
having that going on and then having a photographer who knows what to look for and then having a mo- like a person or a model or a module, whatever, like the other person who's in front of the camera know what the other person's looking for in a shot is very cool. So you kind of work together and it becomes like this epic adventure. Um, so, yeah, that's why I love photography and I love film underwater as well um, because, yeah, it's it's awesome. It's epic. <laughs> like it's exciting. It's the best, ex- it's the best feeling ever. Um, nothing really tops it for me. So yeah. And when you're shooting as well, like, you know, if you've got someone who's in front of your lens and you, you just kind of push yourself a little bit to hold out for that shot and then you get this shot and you're like, this is so cool. So, and then they're really happy and you're happy and you, you know, the whole time you were just bouncing this epic energy. So Yeah. It's awesome. What's it What's it like then when it goes from that very, very cool real world experience, and then it gets translated across to this digital sort of you know one dimensional um, layer? And then does that then mean? I mean, I guess I want to ask the question like, do you have a love love relationship with social media, or is it a bit of a love hate one, or does it ebb and flow and change? Um, I think I kind of stayed off social media for the majority of last year while I was filming wild shots. Um, but then I've never really known how to, I, I, for me being in photographs underwater, it's super fun and I don't mind it. I think it's really cool. Um, but, and, and it's always easy for me to post, but when I'm above the water and someone takes a picture of me, it's very weird for me to post that picture. Cause you will, you'll see there aren't that many photos of me out of water. There's a, like a few, but, above um, water. Yeah, above water, but I feel much more comfortable underwater. Um, and I think if I'm not if I'm not diving or I'm not experiencing something, it's it kind of social media does get a little bit like, uh, you know, I, I don't want things to be an effort. Like I want to be educating people and also inspiring people and not posting what I had for breakfast. Um, <laughs> you know, I want to really be engaging, and that can be hard to do if you're not actively involved in in the world of freediving at the time so if you pull up an old photograph like at the moment I'm pulling up so many pictures from my archives but then I'm thinking you know what can I say that you know where I can drive people or you know inform people (laughs) um but in what you were saying as well before is that I've actually just in the Bahamas I wasn't there as a on a photographic trip um photographic trip I was there filming so I do have a short seven minute film coming out on sharks um, or hammerhead sharks um, and their importance for our environment. Um, That'll be finished in a couple of weeks. And it's my first of a like number of short episodes that I want to do. So I can take people underwater in a film, like a small film and, and give them that experience and show them that it's okay to die with sharks. And they're actually really precious for our environment. Um, and the underwater ecosystem and why we need them and why they're so important and why they're so freaking cool. Um, so it's my first underwater stint and ultimately I would love to keep making underwater content, but not just little videos and things. I want to make, you know, I want to keep making things that are really informative and concentrate on a species like every episode and work with a scientist every episode um and yeah that's something I've kind of been a concept I've been working on for a while and finally I went and did one um because it's not cheap to do (laughs) but finally went and did one 
and I'll see how that turns out but hopefully they'll get picked up as you know something that everybody can access as well um like a multiple brand thing where everybody can like launch it on their platforms and it's just like something that's in, you know a, a gift basically just to say here like come and see the underwater world with me um even. yeah well I think um obviously that's sort of what I pick up from so much of your communications and social media, it, it is a journey uh, with you into those places that some of us will never go. Have you ever had any chance to work with like um, virtual reality or 360 degree um, video equipment? I could imagine that would be pretty exciting for you to take us in there using some of these mixed reality tools. Yeah, that would be awesome. I, I have, I've been, I did one or I've done one or two underwater virtual reality, those goggle thingos. That's super cool. Like that's pretty much what it's like underwater. Yeah. So cool. But you can breathe. Yeah, you <laughs> can breathe wearing. and you don't feel the water on your skin. Yeah. <laughs> but you 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 and you don't get the mammalian dive reflex. But like it's it's super cool. Like I think yeah, I, I really love those. Yeah, I would have yeah. one in my lounge room if I could. <laughs> yeah, we're talking to a, a bunch of different great projects. Um, underwater Earth, who did the whole. 360 degree Google Street View, so you can go and explore reefs on the yeah, Google wow. Earth tool, and also a Melbourne-based um, virtual reality company called Foria, who are doing really cool stuff on on ocean. So that'll be a big part of the OI journey. Um, I think we're going to probably wrap up in a, in a few minutes, Jules. But um, you touched on something before there, which is obviously traveling on the around the world and creating um, great projects is expensive. Like, how are you going um, with sort of turning? your passions into a career. I wanted to touch on some of your you know, entrepreneurial interests in, in in products and things. Like, Where are you at now? Where is your head into the future and how you can make a successful career out of your association with the ocean and, and conservation? Well, hopefully um, with the documentary series that I just started, um, hopefully that does well in the sense that it will and in well, I mean, I hope it get, gets the reach that it needs. And I hope that it does, it serves its purpose in inspiring and educating the world of what's going on. And and if that happens, then I think that's a success. I think I see that as a huge success. Um, financially, I definitely am not rolling in it. Um, I've put pretty much the majority of all of my spending last year into, well, the budget for my documentary series, it all went to the documentary series. Um, I think I just lived off the, um, I lived off some of the funding, like, you know, when we were overseas, you get your per diems. I lived off the budget as much as I could in as small capacity as I could so that I could make something really as amazing as I possibly could, which comes with sacrifice, as you know. Um so I think for now, like I'm just sitting on wild shots and I'm going to see how that goes. We do have season two planned. That's all written out. That's ready to go. Um, so I'm in a holding pattern at the moment or with, with that specific project. I'm still working on this mini series that uh, time will tell if that gets picked up. If that gets picked up, hopefully I'll get paid. Well, I'll need to get paid um, to keep doing those. And then I've got a wetsuit brand that I started developing two years ago called Wheeler Wetsuits, my last name. Um, and that was on the back burner because I had wild shots. 
So now I've finished the range and I'm ready to, I think in three months time, I'll be able to launch that. And I've put a lot of money into that as well. Um, I think I'm just constantly reinvesting into my, my passion and that's all that I do. But then at the same time, it's starting to kind of niggle at me, you know, you need to kind of, you know, (laughs) have a stable income and, be stable and buy a house and have a future and la 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 but deep down like that's just I don't think that's me as in the buy a house thing I think like I think that if you don't I I don't know I think I would be miserable if I didn't work in the conservation space I just don't I've never not really known known that world so I guess I'll just keep fighting to make it work and I'll keep working my ass off and I'll keep trying to inspire people to preserve what we have because that to me is the most important thing in my life and I feel like that's my purpose here on this planet so that's what I'll keep doing and I'll just make it work I'll just keep working and working and working and working and working so yeah that's that it's not luxurious in any way shape or form but who cares it's fun well I hope that uh in two, five, 10, 20 years time, we, we share a drink and we look back and you look and say, wow, not only did I keep on following my passions, but I got everything else that was, um, was deserved as well. Cause I think that to me is so much of the, the fire in my belly with OIO is if there's people out there who are trying to right all the wrongs that we've been allowing all the abuses that we've been doing to our planet and people, if they've got solutions to make it better, like why aren't we giving them the tools to do so? And I think you are so representative of that, Jules. So thanks, Tim. Really enjoyed the chat today. I'll leave it to you to say any final words and um, tell people where they can find out more information about you and your work. Okay. Um, final words. <laughs> I think just be the best person that you can be for the planet. Like it doesn't mean you have to change your entire life, but um I think you know be aware of what's going on and also you know educate yourself in knowing how you can make the world a better place and that might sound silly but it's not it's it's simple and it's actually quite invigorating and rewarding when you you know when you can give back and you can help people who are really working their asses off to try and protect the world that we all live in um and yeah, no, my Instagram's just I am Julia Wheeler, and my website's just a holding page at the moment. And <laughs> yeah, so and then I have wild shots as well um, on Instagram. So hopefully soon that will be getting some love. Um, but yeah, we'll just see. I'll probably be able to speak to you more about that later on down the track. But this pandemic's not really helping that either at the moment. So. Yeah, but I'm lucky. Like, I'm one of the lucky ones. I mean, I know there's heaps of people out there who are doing it super tough and I I just, yeah, I really hope that everyone's okay and safe. So, yeah. All right, Jules. Well, uh, thank you so much again for your time today. Keep up the epic work and hope to see you in face-to-face sometime soon. Yeah, you too, Tim. <laughs> see ya. Bye.